Thank you, Cheryl. I wonder if any of you have read the book, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. It's by Maya Angelou. It's an autobiographical story of growing up in small town Arkansas in the 30s and 40s. Angelo writes of the personalities of her childhood and the challenges and the questions that are part of waking up to what it means to be human. She writes about the complexities of her family. And through it all, there is the awareness that life is not fair. As she completes eighth grade, graduation day approaches. Her class is buzzing with the energy of success and moving on to the next stage of life. Families are bustling to make new dresses and cook up a feast. At the graduation ceremony, the room is packed with pride and joy. And then a local politician comes on stage, perhaps the only white person in the room. He brags about how much money he is bringing to local schools. The white school up the road is getting money for a science lab and an arts program. This school, the black school, is getting money for sports equipment. Now, Maya is proud of athletes such as Joe Lewis and Jesse Owens, but her people have the hope of birthing the next Einstein or Shakespeare. So the energy in the room deflates as the politician reminds them of how power moves in the society and who is lifted up. So their vision for themselves disappears as unrealistic. The politician walks off stage and the class valedictorian dejectedly steps up to give his address. This theme is called to be or not to be inviting his class to consider who they want to become. But the hope is gone. In this society, they could not find room for their ambitions. Throughout the speech, the energy in the room is dead. So after his speech, the valedictorian, just an eighth grader, looks around the auditorium, looks at his class, takes a breath, and starts singing. Lift up every, lift every voice and sing. Tell earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. It is the black national anthem, lift every voice and sing. The whole class joins in and their voices rise to full voiced. The whole auditorium joins in. They keep singing, facing the rising sun of our new day begun. Let us march on till victory is won. So the room is back to life. Hope is reborn. The graduation ceremony continues in its full glory, and the politician is not thought of again. For years, for decades, marginalized people have brushed aside harms, started anew, and felt hope reborn. For years, for decades, people doing the harm have simply walked out of the room oblivious with no acknowledgement, no amends, no restoration of relationship.
We as a congregation aspire to do better. The spirit in me welcomes the spirit in you. Our bylaws say that this is a congregation for all, including marginalized people. But we struggle to become the multicultural, multi-class, multi-ability, multi-generational church of our dreams. I think one of the reasons is that there are a lot more hurts than we realize, a lot more tender spots. And there's the psychological complexity of being human. So we can re disagree about the best ways to react to hurts. I'm reading the 1619 project. I wonder if anyone's read it. Uh, it lists and describes the many hurts experienced by black people in this country. And frankly, I didn't start reading the 1619 project earlier because I didn't like the way it was framed trying to erase the myth of freedom and equality in America. I think that this, that this myth has at times called us to improve our behavior and helped us to make progress towards freedom and equality. So I was scared of losing the myth, even though it wasn't fully true. So I didn't read the 1619 project earlier, but I'm reading it now and it is very helpful. For example, there are people alive today whose parents were killed because they were successful black business people. There are people in prison today because the 13th Amendment has a loophole. The 13th Amendment outlaws slavery with the exception of people who are in prison. So this is one of the reasons that the American prison population is the biggest in the world by far. So given that reality, it is no wonder that there are ongoing hurts. I'm early in my learning journey. There are many more hurts that I'm not aware of. There are many tender spots that I'm not aware of. I once went to a training in an idyllic setting. It was outside on a field in the hills. You get there by going up Route 9. As we did check-ins in a big circle, several white people spoke about what an idyllic setting it was. Then a black man said that he would not normally drive up Route 9 because the risk is too great of getting pulled over for driving while black. So jaws dropped in astonishment. I and other white people present had never considered that, had no idea of the ways racism showed up in this area. So having the training session up Route 9 hit a tender spot because it burdened people who risked the drive. I want to know about people's hurts, but there are critiques of focusing too much on hurts. For example, the psychology professor Jonathan Haidt wrote a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. He says that things hurt more if you are taught to focus on them. He says that on college campuses across the country, students are being taught to interpret things as uncharitably as possible and to dwell in the harm that they experience. You can Google microaggressions if you want to find out more about that. So Jonathan Haidt was unsympathetic to people saying they had been harmed by other people's words most of the time, unsympathetic. 
But then something happened a couple of years ago. This discussion about hurtful speech was going on on his campus, and he started listening to his colleagues of color. He had had no idea of the indignities that they experienced on a regular basis. So he learned and he grew. Are some people taking this harm thing too far? Probably. It's only human to explore new things and take them to their limits. We do that with everything. After decades and centuries of having to keep hurts to yourself, it is only natural that once you can speak your truth, that might go too far. Why does Jonathan Haidt think that you can go too far in avoiding hurts? He gives the example of peanut allergies. If kids are overprotected from peanuts, their immune systems don't develop, and many more kids develop peanut allergies. Overprotection can lead to hypersensitivity. And you can imagine a toddler is toddling along and he wobbles, he falls over, and he looks to you for a signal. Was this an awful experience? Should he cry? Height would say that we are teaching too many people to cry when they would be fine if they just let it go. And focusing on harm has another shadow side. If you give special treatment to people who experience harm, a lot more people are going to discover that they experience harm. So the World Cup of Soccer is coming up and the discussion is happening. Is it possible to stop soccer players from diving? No, the reward for displaying harm is too great. So to recap, there is a lot of harm happening we care for people who are hurting or tender. And Jonathan Haidt makes the case that overprotection can create problems of its own. Unitarian Universalist minister, Reverend Todd Eckloff wrote a book called The Gadfly Papers in which he applies Jonathan Haidt's work to Unitarian Universalism. He said that UU leadership is now overprotecting against harm. A critique of Eckloff was written by transgender UU minister, Chris, Reverend Chris Rothbauer, saying it's not apparent that Eckloff spoke to anyone he disagreed with before writing the book. So his perspective was missing something. And interestingly, Rothbauer does not criticize Eckloff's main idea about the harm principle, and in fact offers what he considers to be a better critique of the harm principle. A queer theorist named Sarah Schulman wrote a book called Conflict is Not Abuse, Overstating Harm, Community Responsibility, and the Duty of Repair. So that was Sarah Schulman, Conflict is Not Abuse. So if you thought that the Gadfly papers made some good points, uh, but could have been written better, Sarah Schulman's book could help you to make the same points in a way that might be heard. I think of the harm principle as having two levels. Level one of the harm principle is that when one of us says they are experiencing harm, we should care. Level two of the harm principle is that if someone is hurt, someone else is out of covenant. And so far I have described level one, the importance of caring for those who are hurt and the shadow side of taking it too far. Now let's look at level two 
If someone is hurt, is someone else out of covenant? After the Gadfly papers came out, 500 white ministers signed a letter criticizing it for causing harm to people of color and trans people. Many signed the letter without reading it because they believe in what I am calling level two of the harm principle. If someone is hurt, someone else is out of covenant. People said they were hurt by the Gadfly papers, so many signed the letter condemning it. The Unitarian Universalist Association's credentialing committee wrote Eckloff a letter saying that he was out of covenant and needed to participate in an accountability process. Eckloff replied that he did not think he was out of covenant. The committee removed him from fellowship for not participating in the process. And then more than a dozen ministers resigned, partly because they did not approve of the UUA's policies and behavior. So these themes are very alive in the UUA. When I see attempts, these attempts at accountability, I ask myself, how should I be accountable from how my own behavior affects other people? And I'll start with voluntary accountability. If someone tells me that they have been hurt by my words, I commit to talking with them about it. I want to know why they might be tender in this area. I want to understand the tendernesses that I did not know about. If I say something that causes an ouch, I want to know what the person is asking for. Are they simply asking for care? Are they asking for an apology? Are they asking that I hear their story? Are they asking that I change my language? Are they asking that I find out more about the subject at hand? And then once I have gained understanding, I have a choice about whether or not to change my behavior. Here's a guideline that I aspire to follow. If I come out of that conversation thinking that I don't need to change my behavior, I commit to investigating more. Do other people feel the same way as this person? What do my friends think, especially friends who see things differently from me? And I hope you all have friends who see things differently from you. And what happens when I type the topic into Google? What can I learn? I also like to ask myself, what would Stacey Abrams say? Or what would Ada Maria Asazi Diaz say? If I give an ouch to someone with autism, I'll commit to reading a book by someone with autism so that I better understand the lay of the land. And a way to be preemptively accountable is that I aspire that at least half of the books that I read are by women and at least 30% are by people with other marginalized identities. This gives me the lay of the land so that I can better anticipate hurts. Sometimes there's a feeling of walking on eggshells, that there are so many hurts that we have to be careful with every step. I'll offer a different image. Walking with the lights out. Of course, you're going to bump into things if the lights are out. You can turn the lights on by talking with people who say, ouch, by reading books by people from different backgrounds, by finding curiosity instead of defensiveness. 
And if people keep bumping into you, you can help turn the lights on by saying, ouch. If you feel resourced to do it, you can say, ouch, with compassion, but no pressure. The burden isn't on you. And I can help you as an ally by stepping in so that you aren't burdened by that work. So that's a voluntary accountability. Officially mandated accountability is when you are required to do some or all of that. There's something curious going on with officially mandated accountability in the UUA. Many people in favor of accountability want it to be a mutual experience within a paradigm of relationship with no shame involved, no guilt, just someone asking, how can I make this right? But when it's officially mandated, it's only natural for someone to say, I don't think I did anything wrong and I won't accept that assumption. So officially mandated accountability is trying to be relational while also being mandatory. It is a culture change to get to a point where people trust the process enough to not get defensive. And should we trust the process? The process gives enormous power to whoever points their finger first. The previous process, when there was a conflict uh, between two ministers, gave enormous power to the person being pointed at. It was easier to play defense, which made it easier for people who have power. It wasn't really fair. But now in the minister's association, the person pointing the finger controls the conflict resolution process. So should we trust the process? I think it's too early to say. We're still trying to work it all out together. Some marginalized people have left because they don't trust the process will get results. Some non-marginalized people have left because they believe that the process underestimates the dangers of removing checks and balances. Democracy can look different if we put accountability at the center. The Canadian Unitarian Council gives some examples of what accountability can look like. They suggest going over all policies and practices with marginalized people to look at what informal power dynamics are at play. They suggest shifting from debate to dialogue as a way of exploring ideas, resolving disagreements, and coming to common understandings, shifting from debate to dialogue. Ibram Kendi takes it further. Kendi recommends that all levels of government have a non-political group that can veto any policy that does not lead to equal outcomes. Now, I doubt that such a group would stay non-political for very long, having such power. So I actually disagree with Kendi. But I support the Canadian Unitarian Council's desire to understand informal power dynamics and shift from debate to dialogue. We are learning how the spirit in me welcomes the spirit in you. Today at one o'clock and Tuesday at six o'clock, I'm hosting conversations about harm and accountability. There's much more to be said. These conversations are part of our interim ministry as we learn how to talk with, with each other compassionately and listen compassionately. Part of the interim ministry journey is discerning who we are as a church, what we are committed to, and what we are looking for in our next settled ministries. So these conversations can help. 
I hope that you join us today and or Tuesday. And the link to Zoom 2 is in the calendar. It used to be that Unitarian Universalists spoke freely, and if someone felt hurt, they simply left. As a result, congregations were in some ways homogeneous. We have committed in our bylaws to doing things differently. All of us care. We're learning how to show it, both in the easy times and when there are hurts. We're learning how to keep compassion in play even when we disagree. There will be more hurts and more learning about points of tenderness. There will be more conversations about how to heal and thrive and include. We can handle the challenges of doing spiritual community. And I feel blessed that we are doing this work together. <laughs>